0: i What started in a major Welcome to worship here at Fusion today. We're so glad that you've joined us here in person as well as online. Welcome. At this time, we invite you to stand up and greet one another with the peace of Christ. This first day of Advent, we light the candle of hope, remembering the words of Isaiah 2. In the days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and the nations shall stream to it. Go. Gotcha. Amen. Let's sing praises to him this morning. One, two, three. <laughs> is called This Is Jesus. We've done it in years past, but it's a great creative way to add familiarity to new words for Christmas. So it's actually to the tune of Come Thou Fount. So you'll catch that as you move along. And then they add a little bridge, which we'll start with so that you're familiar when we get there. (laughs) ¶¶ Rejoice, Jesus with us. Rejoice, hope is free. Rejoice. Son of God who came to, to save, save us, Prince of Peace and Lord of all. For the heart so prone to wander, for these feet so quick to flee, God is here and love is reaching for the amen. Please be
1: seated.
2: Good morning, Fusion family. At this time, we'd like to invite our kids over to the west side over here towards the doors to make their way down towards children's ministry. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Nate DeWitt. I'm the youth pastor here. I get the honor of hanging out with our teenagers quite frequently and getting to know some of these little ones as well. Quick plug for youth ministries. We got our Youth ministry stuff uh, kicking back off after a small Thanksgiving break. Uh, high Tide, is, our high school group, is heading off campus uh, tomorrow night to do some Christmas shopping, which is kind of fun for our Kids Hope store. Uh, Undertale, our middle school group, will have a normal meeting here across the parking lot at the Anchor. And then on Friday, we've got a function for our seventh and eighth graders as well. So, kids, great to see you this morning. We're going to send you out with our parting blessing. Adults, if you would, with me, the Lord be with you. Great job guys. Have a good time downstairs. It's a good thing to have a pause a minute because that means there's a lot of kiddos over there. Adults, if you would pray with me, please. we're going to kick things off with a few words from psalm ninety five Let's pray. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. And his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Lord, as we, as we recite this psalm, uh, we're reminded of your greatness. We're reminded of your power and the fact that you're the great creator in control of all things. But as we look forward to the Advent season and Christmas, we're also reminded of the fantastic and yet gentle way that you came into this world as a baby resting in a simple manger 2,000 years ago in the small town of Bethlehem. Coming out of Thanksgiving and the reminder to be thankful for so much that you have blessed us with, please help us to never forget to be thankful for the greatest gift of all, you. Yet, in all of our gratitude, Lord, there are still many hurts that we struggle with and struggle through yearly, monthly, weekly, and daily. For those carrying brokenness uh, and of losing friends and family, comfort them. For those fighting a sickness or cancer, we ask that you strengthen them. For those struggling with financial issues, Lord, bless them. And in unison, and in unison with your help, please grant us opportunities to help as well. Give us the strength, the courage, the tools, and the will to step into the dark places of our world and bring in your light. Over the last last year, Lord, many of us have made mistakes. We ask for your forgiveness and the strength to forgive others when we've been hurt. We know this world is full of sin and we know the ways in which we are guilty of living in ways we should not be. Help us to realize those and realize, realize our need for your grace and the ability to move beyond those mistakes into living a life more full of you Lord, today we enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. Help us to do that, not only today, but every day. We're a community with so much to be grateful for, and we know that is because of you and you alone. Thank you, Lord. Please bless our time together today. Help us to hear you loudly today through our worship, our message, and our community. Amen.
1: Thanks, Nate. (laughs) And good morning again, community. Good morning, good morning. I uh, pray and hope that you all enjoyed a grace-filled extended weekend. Uh, anyone still full from Thursday? All right. Just for fun, favorite uh, favorite sides for Thanksgiving. How many love stuffing? How about cornbread casserole? Oh, okay. Sorry, cornbread casserole. No votes. Green bean casserole. Mashed potatoes. Anyone know what a seven-layer salad is? Yes, that's like my favorite. Okay. All right. Now that we've uh, admitted our gluttony, let's talk about confession. All right. That's actually our sermon topic this morning, but I set you up. I'm just kidding. Hey, uh, holidays, as Nate mentioned, have a tendency to be really good um, or really hard um, or some mix of both. And uh, as I was just thinking about this morning, either way, Uh, It's good to gather together this morning uh, and to posture our hearts toward God and the gift of the gospel, amen. And as we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, during this season of, of Thanksgiving leading into Advent today is the first Sunday of Advent leading into Christmas it's this time of year that we really encourage just generosity to live with with hands open and uh, and so if you have those um, bags that we've been collecting for neighbors plus please get those in by tomorrow if you still want to give in that way wonderful um, but also just con- continue to remember to, to give toward the ministries of Hardaway church particularly for those really this is specifically for those who are members uh, there's a lot of ministry happening that's dependent on your generosity and so just encourage you if you have questions about how to give please do that there's some emails that are going around with a little more information Uh, but as we think about giving not only of our resources and finances you'll see a slide up on the screen there's other ways to give as well with our time And really, I think we all agree that our our time is probably our our most precious resource that we have to give. And uh, right now, we have a a need for more mentors. And if you don't know what uh, Kids Hope is, it's a ministry uh, where we partner with one of our local schools, and you give an hour a week, and you mentor. You spend an hour with a student who who needs that one-on-one mentoring. And we're putting together a video, hopefully, uh, that we can share just one testimony of how lives are absolutely changed and the trajectory of lives and families are changed because of an hour a week that people like us have given uh, to some kids who need a little bit of extra time and attention. So if you have any questions, I've been a Kids Hope mentor. I'd, I'd love to answer questions, share my story. Uh, but Don, uh, please email Don Hauskamp at uh, the email listed. little plug there. All right. Sound good? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands who's, who's mentoring, but just in your heart, make that commitment. Uh, let's jump back into our series. Um, we are looking at the narrative of Scripture, a mini series called The Story. And uh, In the story, sorry, the mini-series is uh, we're looking at a king is coming, and we're looking at the kings of Israel with eyes toward the one who would come in the line of David, Jesus Christ, and so it's going to lead right into Advent, right into Christmas perfectly well. Today is our last Sunday in the books of First and Second Samuel. Here's kind of just a summary that's kind of been inspired by Bible projects, Bible posters, uh, but we looked at the, the rise and fall of Saul a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at, at David, a man... after. After God's own heart, we pondered what made his heart different from his predecessor, Saul, and we kind of looked at his ascent, right? Well, today we we look at really... Second Samuel Chapter Eleven, and following, which is really the decline of David, kind of his fall. this we pick up his story. We remember really it begins with David's major moral failure uh, that precipitates his downfall. What we're told in chapter eleven of Second Samuel is one spring, uh, David stays home from battle, which is a known, you don't do that as king. Um, and while he's home, he notices from his rooftop, a beautiful woman who's married, Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. He sends for her, he, he sleeps with her, recognizes this power dynamic going on there. She becomes pregnant. Then there's this elaborate attempt to cover up his sin. David horrifically places her husband, her Uriah on the front lines of battle where he knew he would be killed, removes the other troops. David essentially uses his position in power to kill an innocent and honorable man, and David marries, then marries Bathsheba. At the very the last verse of 2 Samuel 11, we read, the thing that David had done displeases, displeased the Lord. This man, the king, David, who we learned last week had a heart for the Lord, has failed in a reprehensible and disgusting way, and now we pick up in the story, chapter 12, this is our text this morning, where David will be called out by the prophet Nathan, and our question just that we ask is, how will David respond? Listen to God's word, and if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us this morning. 2nd Samuel chapter 12 <clears throat> The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, now he tells him a parable. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he had bought. Burned with anger against the man, and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your whole ho- own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, once again, we thank you and we are struck by the realness of your word. That Lord, your word is, is not an account of, of all the, the good things that happened under the stars, but Lord, it includes all the brokenness and the grossness of life that we each have experienced. We pray by your spirit that you would speak into our hearts, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would comfort and hold us where we need to be comforted. And in all these things, draw us closer to your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. All these things, amen and amen. I'm willing to guess that uh, at the... Thanksgiving dinner table with family and extended family, one of the uh, lists of topics of conversation was likely not sin. Anyone have a thrilling discussion of sin around the Thanksgiving table? Probably not. Sin, it's a word honestly that we don't talk about much anymore, Um, In many ways, just this word sin has kind of become taboo in in our culture. It's really a a religious word. Um, But even in churches, um, we've become increasingly hesitant to use the word sin um, because of all the connotations and baggage that it carries. We instead use different words, and I do this, like brokenness or or failure, and those words are all true um, in many respects. And tragically, the reason that that this word sin has become taboo in our culture is because of how the church has misused this word. The church historically has tragically used the word and the theological concept of, of sin as a tool to manipulate and to hammer people with guilt and shame so that they'll behave in certain ways. And we should own that as the church, and we should repent of its damage and at the same time, I think we need to acknowledge and recognize that to go in the other extreme and just completely toss out any concept or theology or, or discussion of sin or even just softening its impact is equally as unhelpful and even dangerous and damaging. Because the reality is, sin is Sin is real. Sin, friends, is what inclines the human heart away from what is good and what is of God. Sin is, 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 is what makes our nature, our human nature, our broken nature bent toward the self, toward selfishness, toward self-preservation, toward selfish gain, toward self, you fill in the blank, right? And sin is something that impacts all of us. Every single heart in this room, every single human heart in this world is impacted by the brokenness of sin. That's why scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we gather here not because we've somehow avoided sin, no. No. We gather here because we recognize that we are all indeed sinners. And this account in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 powerfully illustrates how sin works in the lives of people. Even people like David, whose heart, as we learned last week, is indeed for the Lord. This morning, our hope as we explore these difficult passages, and there's some difficult stories here in 2 Samuel, but our hope is to explore the seriousness of sin, while also recognizing that God has given us a defense against it, and so let's begin by considering how sin uh, is like a snowball. Let's we'll talk about the the sin snowball, if you will. Uh, I'm assuming most of us are kind of at least fairly familiar with the concept of the snowball effect. It's pretty common. Uh, concept, right? The idea that that even a small snowball at the top of a mountain as it begins rolling down a mountainside, it picks up more and more snow and more and more speed and it becomes this gigantic boulder with devastating impact, right? And that that snowball effect can be used for a variety of different illustrations, some positive, um, some negative, but it certainly can be a powerful illustration of how sin works in our lives as well. It's especially true with glaring moral failures like what we read in Second Samuel 11 with King David. And let's talk about how sin can often snowball out of control. Let's look at the example of David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. What we have is this pattern that emerges of how moral failures creep in. There's some unwise behavior or some unwise actions that lead up to a moral failure, and then as, as someone tries covering up that sin, it just snowballs out of control, and we see that glaringly in King David's life in chapter 11. First, consider some of the behaviors that precede the obvious moral failure uh, of David um, with Bathsheba. Some of these behaviors uh, would be considered sins, but others are just unwise. And, and, I, and I mentioned that, and I, because I think it's significant, because far too often uh, we justify unwise decisions by saying things like, "Well, I, I didn't. Technically, I didn't do anything wrong," and that, that's true in a lot of cases. We might not do anything wrong, but that unwise behavior might put us in a in a position that's not good. Right? Let's just look at the first couple verses in First Samuel. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent sent Joab. Out with the king's men to the whole Israeli army. Pause. What we, what we read here is that David's men are all off to war. But he's sticking around Jerusalem. That's a problem. The king is to lead his men in battle. He is not supposed to be in Jerusalem in the first place. He is to be with his men as they're battling the Ammonites. We continue reading. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around his roof on the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. So the first mistake David makes is he should be in war still. The next thing he does, he goes off. It's late at night. Maybe he can't sleep, and he's walking around his rooftop. He's not doing anything wrong, but he notices a woman bathing, and he notices that she's beautiful. Now, you know, okay, he could have just went back down, down, down to his chamber, right? But he doesn't. He continues. David begins to gather some information about Bathsheba. Now again, is that necessarily wrong or a sin? I don't know, but is it unwise? Yes, we would all agree with that. And then it leads to the moral failure. He sends for her, sleeps with her, major moral failure. One poor, un, uh, poor decision, staying home from battle, led to another, a series of unwise decisions that put David in a position where he makes a catastrophic sin, Right? The, story, the, the chapter continues, Bathsheba returns home, she's ashamed, she's a broken woman, and then she finds out she's pregnant. Then comes David's cover-up. We won't read these verses, but just to kind of summarize, the sin snowballs toward destruction as David searches for a way around his sin becoming public. What happens is David invites Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the battlefront and his hope is that Uriah will go home be with his wife sleep with his wife and then they'll just everyone will just believe that the baby is Uriah's including Uriah. But Uriah is a more honorable man than David and he refuses to be with his wife while the other men are remain in battle. Again now we're now it's glaringly showing the diff, the contrast between David who's stuck around and Uriah who has more honor than David at this point. The story continues and David tries a second time this time getting Uriah drunk, hoping that that will seduce him into going home to be with his wife. Again, he says, no way. At this point, it snowballs out of control and David sends Uriah back to the battlefield and gives command to put Uriah on the front lines and when the Ammonites attack, he commands his generals to remove all the other men so that Uriah is killed. Now, are you feeling uncomfortable? (laughs) You see how sin just snowballs out of control in David's life. Snowballs out of control toward death and destruction. David's failure, you see, is a powerful example of how sin works, how the enemy works. The enemy knows how to use deception and lies to play toward disordered, sinful desires of our heart that lead us toward destruction. And oftentimes, the world is there just justifying all these decisions, saying, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. But for us as Christians in the 21st century, it's important for us to be alert and to be on guard regarding the decisions we make. Friends, we need to understand our own sin patterns we need to understand our own weaknesses and, and guard against choices and situations and environments that play to those things. Far earlier in the process, right? Again, ironically, this past weekend is one of those, is one of those moments where there's all kinds of temptations, like, boom! Like, like if, if we struggle with gluttony or overeating or whatever, like, boom, Thanksgiving feasts. Drinking, it's boom, it's right in your, it's right, it's all available. Materialism, shopping, Black Friday, boom. Family dynamics, and boom. You see what I'm saying? Like Thanksgiving is like, where all of these temptations that play to our, our weaknesses. They're all just right there before us. And these things are more easily accessible and that makes it more difficult. Here's the other thing. Our digital world, one of the challenges living in a digital world. Because those things that play to those disordered desires, those, those weaknesses, those, those things that tempt us, everything is just a click or a tap away on these devices. And not only in a digital world do we have more accessibility to all of these vices, but we also have the cover, right, of anonymity. Because now we can, we can click in the privacy of our own homes and no one knows about it. We need to be on our guard because it, things are far more accessible than ever before. And if we're not careful, these things can just snowball out of control. And the question is, how do we, how do we stop the snowball early on in the process before that thing gains so much momentum? Just a question to consider question to ponder sin snowball second idea about sin that we learned from from David and second Samuel is that sin thrives in the dark sin, sin thrives in the darkness I don't this might be a helpful illustration. Sin is a lot like mold, particularly like a toxic mold right Where does mold thrive in the dark right mold? Mold thrives in in, in dark places, often hidden places. You you, you you, you remove something, oh, there's there's mold. But what is, I mean, certain molds, though, can be deadly. Certain molds attack the body slowly and silently without even someone noticing. And sin acts a lot like that. It, It thrives in the darkness. Think of David. After Uriah's death, after his murder really on the battlefield, David does again contextual difference, he does the, the honorable thing. He he marries Bathsheba, takes her into his home so she's not left abandoned. She becomes his wife. Uh but but David is his cover his his all these cover up attempts. Now now he's maybe hoping it seems to just continue his life without anyone really realizing what happened. Oh, I took this poor woman in. Now she's my wife. We're going to have a baby together. But just like you can't ignore mold and pretend like it's not there, you can't just sweep sin under a rug and hope that it'll go away. And the Lord sends Nathan, a prophet, who shares this parable, just sharing this parable of a rich man taking a poor man's only sheep, and, and David grows like, disproportionately furious with this fictional character, right? And he demands that this fictional character be put to death, What we see in David is that David fails to see himself in the man because sin has blinded him. David can't see his own sin, even though he can clearly see the very same sin in someone else because sin has just been left to fester and grow in secret and blind David. Again, we, we, we bring it back to our own context. How easy it is, is it for us to fall into this same trap? It's easy. It's even tempting to focus on other people's sins while remaining blind to our own. And again, as the church of Jesus Christ, we, we need to just confess and admit that, that the church has been guilty of this. We have an unfortunate history of being highly judgmental and self-righteous about certain sins while turning a blind eye to the many sins that we are tempted with. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Materialism and greed, it's like, it's on full display. Ah, you know, it's, it's not that bad. Any kind of sexual sin? Right? And Again, we need to own that and we need to repent of that. But here's the thing: Did you notice that judgment and self righteousness seem to have caught on in our broader culture? Spend any time on on Twitter, for as long as Twitter will be around. I don't. We don't know how much longer it'll be there, right? But you'll see this: that the mob will just pounce on someone who may, who, who sins, who has a moral failure, and it's quick and it's complete. Now, are there different? There's different offenses. Sure, of course, but but there's a similar response to the church in the past. In both cases, there's this high moral standard, but a lack of grace. A lack of grace, which ironically, this lack of grace keeps folks highly motivated to keep their sin and moral failures hidden and in the dark and out of the public eye, right? And what did we just learn it remains hidden and in the dark where it can fester, grow, and snowball out of control. And friends, that is a huge, huge problem because the stakes are simply too high. Not only does it create an impossible standard that none of us can live up to, which is a weight none of us can bear, but it also allows the consequences of sin to continue to spread into our world. And David shows us the story, the testimony of David and how 2 Samuel continues to play out shows the devastating consequences of sin. What we see in the life of David is how sin, like mold or like a cancer, will continue to spread and impact people and circumstances well beyond the moment of offense. There is a far-reaching impact. Nathan's words foretell of how David's sin will result in lasting consequences that will impact his family and kingdom moving forward. Nathan says these words, verse 10, they're on the screen. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did in secret will be, with, with, what you did in secret. I will do this thing in broad daylight. And he goes on and says that the son that your wife, that Bathsheba has borne will, will die. Basically, Nathan is telling David that his own sin will return to him. The seeds of sexual deviance against Bathsheba, the violence against Uriah will continue to grow within David's household and kingdom. The damage has been done and the consequences are coming. And we see this as the story continues, again, with the tragic death of David's son with Bathsheba. Again, that raises all kinds of questions. I understand that. And if you feel uneasy about it, I think that's the point, right? Right? But then the story continues and there's this horrific story of of sexual assault. David's son, Amnon, assaults his half-sister, Tamar, and then Tamar's brother, Absalom, murders him for it. Then Absalom, David's son, rebels against his father, David, trying to take his throne, and then he's the one who sleeps with his father's wives, and if those two or three sentences make you queasy, you're getting the picture. It's a disastrous mess. Here's an important note. It's easy, it's maybe even tempting to interpret these stories as as God's divine punishment against David. But I don't think that's the right question. I think this is more a story about how sin has a catastrophic impact on all of those in its vicinity. I don't think the story is trying to attempt to answer the impossible question of why do bad things happen. That's the wrong question. But rather, I think the question that 2 Samuel, this second part of 2 Samuel is attempting to answer is what does sin produce in our lives? And if we're answering that question, the answer is devastation, disaster, destruction, and death. And we don't have to look far to know that this is true because we can just look at our own lives and maybe not in these moral failures, but we still see how sin can have a devastating impact and even what we might kind of write off as small little sins or grievances. When a lie is told, a small lie, but trust is broken and a relationship is damaged. We see it in our own lives when we, when we lose our temper with our kids. And out comes a harsh, cutting word, and we, we see in our kids that their spirits are just crushed by this moment of rage. We see in our own lives when, when a dishonest business deal to just make a few extra bucks continues to play out. Or we see it when when some innocent maybe gossip with friends and suddenly what was shared comes out and the devastation that that causes. You see, friends, sin is still an enemy. It is like a cancer. It is like a festering mold that needs to be completely eradicated. And thankfully, thankfully God in his grace gives us a tool that we can use to defend against sin spread. That's where we want to end. Let's talk about confession. In our passage this morning, after Nathan confronts David, the the first words out of his mouth, did you notice, are not denial. They're not defensiveness. They're not justifying what he did. It's not blaming anyone else. By the way, which is what Saul did, his predecessor, all those things. Instead, the first words out of David's mouth on the screen David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that statement is not about that he didn't sin against anyone else. No, it is a statement of the completeness of his sin, that he has sinned against Bathsheba, he has sinned against Uriah, he has sinned against the Lord Almighty himself. In these simple and powerful words, we get another glimpse of a heart for the Lord. We don't get a glimpse at a perfect life. (laughs) Far from perfect, right? I mean, David's offenses would would put him rightfully so in jail in our modern context for a long, long time, the rest of his life. We would have written off David, right? But it's a powerful reminder to us that, that in the church, In this community of people, the goal is not fostering perfect, righteous communities of perfect, righteous people. That is not the point. But rather, the the hope and the prayer for the church is to create an honest and safe space for grace and healing and forgiveness and redemption to thrive. There's consequences, there's justice, yes, but a place of healing and forgiveness. See, when we consider sin's impact and damage, our best defense, maybe our only defense, is confession. And confession in in a community of grace is our best defense. The scripture gives us a model for confession in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 51, one of the most well-known psalms of confession, offers what is traditionally understood as David's personal prayer in response to this specific failure. The psalm opens. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, What David is literally saying is be gracious to me according to your character. Recognizing that confession is totally, completely founded on the compassion and grace of God based on his character. Be gracious to me according to your character. David is saying, and we can say with him, offer to me what I do not deserve because of who you are. Compassionate and gracious. Verse two, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David is asking for forgiveness. He understands the weight and the stain of sin, its impact. And then he goes on to continue to acknowledge the specific sins in his life and how sin is a deep-seated condition of the heart in verses three through five. For I know my transgressions. I was sinful even at birth. And then finally, David offers a, peti- a petition for God to do a new work to create in me a pure heart. You know, the pastors do this collaboration every week. One of the things Pastor Bill mentioned was that this word here in verse 10 for create, there's a couple words in the Hebrew for create. One is is like creating a sculpture or a work of art, you know. There's another one that's used in Genesis where God creates something completely new. That's the word being used here in verse 10. God, create in me something completely new, a pure heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, do a work of renewal and restoration in my heart, something only you can do to bring about change and renewal within me. You see, friends, in Psalm 51, we have a blueprint for communal and individual confession, a psalm that has been used for centuries in communal worship and in the quiet prayers of God's people. Because only when we acknowledge our sin before God does sin lose its power and its grip in our lives. Sin will keep... It's strong grip on our hearts as long as we allow it to remain hidden. It will fester, it will grow with an increasingly devastating impact in our lives and in those closest to us. We cannot just ignore it. We cannot just hope that it'll go away. You wouldn't ignore black mold if it was growing in your laundry room, right? No, you would do something about it because you understand the threat. But God gives us this gift of confession. Confession. It's a hard gift but it's a gift nonetheless. You see friends, just as as sin has increasingly become more and more taboo of a topic to discuss, along with that so has the practice and the conversation around confession. Because if we don't acknowledge sin, you know, if we're all just, you know, decent people, what's why do we have a need to confess those sins before God? A little history uh, through the reformation Pro- the Protestants, the Protestant Church, did away with one of the practices—the practice of confession as a sacrament. Right now, and and that practice is where you confess your sins. Most of us are maybe only familiar with this uh, through movies, right, where you confess your sins to a priest. Now, there's reasons for that change, and and I'm and I understand that. Uh, I understand that we don't need an intermediary; we can go straight to God, and, and I agree with that. And I also FYI, I'm not suggesting that we form a long line after the service and you all come to me. I'm not suggesting that. But I do want to ask is is what have we lost as we've gotten rid of that practice? Instead, for Protestants, the vast majority, confession was moved to a liturgical element of worship. And so each Sunday, uh, Maybe you remember this growing up. I certainly do. Uh, there was a movement in the service where there was a prayer of confession and then there, it was always followed by a, a words of assurance or assurance of pardon. In other words, every Sunday, people of God would gather and they'd recognize their sinfulness and then every Sunday, they would be reminded that they're forgiven and that Jesus Christ has forgiven all your sins. I mean, it's a beautiful rhythm as part of worship. And I think for many of us now, confession has kind of been maybe reduced, this is a little crude way, and I apologize, but kind of like a tagline at the end of our prayers, where we kind of just add at, during our prayers, like, and and forgive us of our many sins, amen, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, please continue to pray that prayer. Um. But, but, confession went from confessing to a priest to a liturgical element and now it's a tagline on our prayers and and that almost comes off as like kind of this blanket coverage like let's just cover my bases did did I sin today maybe I don't know but just in case let's just get it all forgiven like kind of insurance like an insurance plan right and so the question is what are we missing by not having confession as a regular rhythm in our lives I think about where in worship do we remind people of our need for confession. Nate did a beautiful job in the congregational prayer by acknowledging that that we are sinners and we're we're in need of grace. And Jesus Christ, thank you for your grace that covers our sins. I think also whenever we we share the gospel, we're reminded because without the, the recognition of sinfulness, why is there a need for a gospel? So whenever we share the gospel, that's part of the conversation here's another question do you do you have a place where you can name specific sins and struggles not just a generic prayer maybe privately maybe in a prayer journal where you can write down sins in your life maybe maybe it's in a prayer practice Uh, there's a prayer of examine and part of that examine is is acknowledging where you failed god right and sin in that past day Even better than that, do you have people in your life with whom you can be vulnerable and practice confession? It doesn't have to be with a priest, but do you have someone who you can talk to? A close friend, a small group, a counselor or therapist is a great way to be completely vulnerable and honest, or a spiritual director, a pastor. I'd be happy to chat. If you want to talk, I'm, I'm happy to chat. Honestly, as I, as I think about this practice of, of sharing our struggles, sharing our own sins, there, there's, one, there's one group who does this really well in our country that I know of. It's AA. Alcoholics Anonymous. AA groups that, that meet weekly, oftentimes in, in dingy church basements during the week across the country. And those meetings that begin with, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic say hi so and so welcome see there's something powerful about this kind of community and trust a place where people truly feel safe where people understand that none of us have it all together that we are all a work in progress and that I can share my struggles here that people will still love me and support me and pray for me and encourage me on that journey Honestly, friends, this is is what our hope and prayer is for Heart Awake, for Fusion. That this can be a place where I can say, hi, I'm Pastor JB, and I'm a sinner. And you'll say, hi, JB, welcome. And the hope is that in smaller communities, because we can't be completely vulnerable with the masses, but in smaller communities of trust, we can be completely vulnerable we can say, hey, friends, this is how I messed up this week. And I need your help. I need your prayers so that that I can can live into God's plan for my life. And just imagine if as a church community across this campus, if we were in groups like that and we were sharing with that kind of openness and vulnerability and people were, were holding us accountable, maybe, just maybe, we'd stop the snowball. Steps one and two. Before it rolled down the hill out of control. And even if it rolled down the hill, we could be a place where the gospel st- still can cover your sins. There's accountability, and there's all that stuff, right? But imagine is that messy? Is that hard? Is that uncomfortable? Maybe. But I believe, I believe it's far more fruitful. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for courage and the spirit's work in our lives. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is is messy. We thank you that it raises questions. We thank you, Lord, that your word invites us to wrestle. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would meet us each in that wrestling. And Holy Spirit, that you would speak into our hearts, even right now. Spirit, as an act of, of love for us, show us and reveal those areas in which we've fallen short, those areas of vulnerability and weakness. And God, as we sing this this next song, a song that expresses and confesses our need for you, Lord, may we bring those struggles and those sins and that brokenness and that weakness before you, recognizing, Lord, that, that you receive it in grace and love. And Lord, may we allow your spirit to work. Continue to grow us, shape us, and mold us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. My righteousness, O God, how I know
1: The reality is we're all broken sinners. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. But the good news, the reason we have hope on this first Sunday of Advent are the words we just sang on the screen. That God sent his son to forgive us of our sins. God sent his spirit to continue to be at work in our lives, renewing us and restoring us drawing us closer to him. So as you go from here, receive this blessing as words of assurance this morning. May the God of mercy, who forgives you all your sins, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. God's people say together, amen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> rejoice we